Thank you for downloading this sermon from Trinity Presbyterian Church in Spartanburg, South Carolina. For more information about Trinity, visit our website at www.trinityspartanburg.com. Turn to Psalm 2. That's where we're going to begin tonight. And the topic is the anger of Jesus, or the wrath of Jesus. We're going through these various attributes of our Savior, Jesus Christ, and what I'm trying to do through these is, is hit things that aren't typical, that we don't normally go to, um, to help us expand our thoughts of Jesus and his work, right? To, to think beyond just the sort of evangelical caricature of Jesus as a friend or a buddy, um, but to, to think upon him as he truly is. And so one of, one of the aspects, one of the, the attributes of Jesus Christ that we don't really think about, but we see written again all over Scripture, is that he is angry. He has been angry. He is now angry, and he will always be angry. And I'm going to prove it from the Word of God. And we start with Psalm 2, and and of course, you know that we we sing this psalm. You know this psalm because we sing it. And we're, we're calling on Jesus to express his anger as we, we pray that psalm before him. But if you look at especially verses 9 and 12, this psalm tells us uh, Jesus' approach to the nations and the nations that are raging and raging against him. He has a response to them, and it's not one of, Isn't that cute? It's one of anger. It's one of mocking laughter, in fact. And so I'll read this psalm just to get us into into the frame of mind we need for this topic. Why are the nations in an uproar and the peoples devising a vain thing? The kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed saying, let us tear their fetters apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in heaven laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. Then he will speak to them in his anger and terrify them in his fury, saying, but as for me, I've installed my king upon Zion, my holy mountain. I will surely tell of the decree of the Lord. He said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will surely give the nations as your inheritance and the very ends of the earth as your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron. You shall shatter them like earthenware. Now therefore, O king, show discernment. Take warning, O judges of the earth. Worship the Lord with reverence and rejoice with trembling. Do homage to the Son that he not become angry. And you perish in the way, for his wrath may soon be kindled. How blessed are all who take refuge in him. So the wrath of the Son of God is kindled in response to what? What is it that provokes the anger of the Lord? What what would you say the psalm teaches us? What provokes the wrath of, 
of Jesus. Rebellion. Rebellion against the commands of God. Okay. An unwillingness to honor Jesus. An unwillingness to uh, worship. Right? Unwillingness to uh, announce Him as the King of kings and the Lord of lords. The one who is above every nation. Right? Yeah. Worship the Lord with reverence and rejoice with trembling. Do homage to the Son, right? Acknowledge His name. And if you don't, His wrath is kindled. Revelation 19 makes the same point. What is... What is... uh, What does Jesus do... I mean, the psalm is fulfilled, right? It will be fulfilled in history. Revelation 19, particularly verses 11 through 16. And I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse, and he who sat on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and wages war. Jesus, sweet Jesus. His eyes are a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems, and he has a name written on him which no one knows except himself. He is clothed with a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. And the armies which are in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, were following him on white horses. For his, from his mouth comes a sharp sword, so that with it he may strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron, and he treads the winepress of the fierce wrath of God the Almighty. And on his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. How do we do justice to that awesome glory of Jesus Christ? That the nations will bow before him and he will rule them. Those that rejected him, he will destroy with the rod that comes out of his mouth. Now, there's another aspect to the wrath of Jesus that we don't often think about. But it is, it is our understanding, right, that in the Old Testament, who is Jesus revealed as? Melchizedek. Yes, but that's not the answer. <laughs> it's a good Messiah, Messiah, yeah. The angel of the Lord, right? We understand that the angel of the Lord in those references, and I've talked about this before in evening services and as we went through Judges, right? You have to address it. But the angel of the Lord is a Christophany. It is Jesus, a pre-incarnate Christ, coming. And what is the angel of the Lord usually doing? Striking down to death those who will not worship God. Right? 135,000 in one night. Jesus destroying them. And so we understand the angel of the Lord to be a Christophany, a pre-incarnate son of God. And, and this is what, what Mark Mark Jones says about it. He says, as the Old Testament 
shows us the angel of the Lord, the Son of God, often executed judgment in the most severe ways. Such appearances of Christ anticipated the reality of his judgment upon his enemies, especially at the final day when he judges and makes war. That's what we just read. And he goes through 1 Chronicles 21, where we see the angel of the Lord acting. And then... And then he points out this from Jude 5. Or, yeah, Jude verse 5. Now I desire to remind you that though you know all things once for all, that the Lord, after saving a people out of the land of Egypt, subsequently destroyed those who did not believe. He makes the point that the only way to understand that is that was the work of Jesus Christ. Destroying those who did not believe. He says, The Apostle Jude makes a fascinating comment regarding Christ's wrath. Now I want to remind you, although you once, fu- you, you once fully knew it, that Jesus, who saved the people out of the land of Egypt afterward, destroyed those who did not believe. Jude 5. Alright, so, so in a very, very real sense, Jesus, as I said before, is angry... In the past, he's angry now, and he will be angry in the future. This is a contrast to the the right but not full vision that we have of who Jesus is. He is a bearer of wrath. Not only is he wrathful, but but we, we have a tendency to think upon Jesus as he is in that bearer of wrath. He's the one who received the wrath of God in his, in his propitiatory sacrifice. We think of him as a lamb, right? the lamb that was slaughtered. We think of him as that, that one who's silent before, before his enemies. He is meek. He is a friend, right? He is submissive to the, the will of his father. We think of Jesus in all these terms, but that is not all that he is. As those previous scriptures have pointed out, he is also angry. He is also wrathful. He is also waiting to break out against unrepentant nations and unrepentant sinners. And that does not play well in today's context. Why doesn't it play well in today's context? Because we're soft. Because we can't think of anger ever being good. But how do we know that there is good anger? Because God is angry. Right? And we're told to be angry and not sin. So it means that there must be righteous anger. But we always have a tendency to think that anger is bad... We, we think of our lives through the lenses of self-esteem and building up and, you know, what, only, only the positive. We all need affirmation. We give first place trophies to all the participants in sports. And all of this is proof that that we have just emaciated views of who Jesus is and that we believe in cheap grace. 
Right? There's no reason to have fear and trembling before the Lord. There's no reason to fear God. There's no reason to, to work out our salvation with fear and trembling, but that Jesus is the cosmic pushover. who requires nothing from us and who will work everything out with his Father, who is angry also. A few more verses to expand out our thoughts on Jesus' anger. We can go to Matthew chapter 25. And we see this incredible, incredible scene of the judgment. 25... 31, but when the Son of Man comes in His glory and all His angels with Him, then He will sit on His glorious throne. All the nations will be gathered before Him and He will separate them from one another as the shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And He will put the sheep on His right and the goats on His left. And then the King will say to those on His right, Come, you who are blessed of My Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundations of the world. For I was hungry and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty, you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger and you invited me in naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him, Lord, you know, humility. When did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you something to drink? And when, he, and when did we see you a stranger and invite you in or naked and clothe you and When did we see you sick or in prison and come to you? And the king will answer and say to them, Truly I say to you, to the extent that you did it to one of these brothers of mine, even the least of them, you did it to me. Then, then, he will say, also say to those on his left, Depart from me, accursed ones, into the eternal fire which has been prepared For the devil and his angels, for I was hungry and you gave me nothing to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me nothing to drink. I was a stranger and you did not invite me in naked and you did not clothe me sick and in prison and you did not visit me. Then they themselves also will answer, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick or in prison and did not take care of you? Then he will answer them, truly I say to you, to the extent that you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. These will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. That is Jesus there pronouncing those judgments. That is Jesus pronouncing condemnation. That is Jesus expressing his wrath, pronouncing a curse on those who have rejected him and who did not serve others. Romans 2 verse 5. Again, this is about Jesus and his anger, Jesus being angry. Romans 2 verse 5. What does that say? Someone probably knows it off the top of their head. Or do you think lightly of the riches of his kindness and tolerance and patience? One of the things that Romans is dealing with is cheap grace. Right? Do you think lightly of the riches of his kindness and tolerance and patience, not knowing that the kindness of God leads you to repentance, but because of your stubbornness and unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself in the day 
of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God who will render to each person according to his deeds, to those who by perseverance in doing good seek for glory and honor and immortality, eternal life, but to those who are selfishly ambitious and do not obey the truth but obey unrighteousness, wrath and indignation. Matthew 10.34, Do not think that I came to bring peace on the earth. I did not come to bring peace but a sword. What follows from that? Well, the consequences of this dividing sword. John 3.36, He who believes in the Son has eternal life, but he who does not obey the Son will not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. Currently, that is a present tense verb, abides on him. 1 Thessalonians 1.10 And to wait for His Son from heaven, whom He raised from the dead, that is Jesus, who rescues us from the wrath to come. Revelation 6.16 has this provocative statement. It brings together two things that we don't normally put together. It talks about the wrath of the Lamb. Right? We think of the Lamb as, as, as silent, you know, and as slaughtered, but this is the wrath of the Lamb. And they said to the mountains and to the rocks, Fall on us and hide us from the presence of Him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. They call forth the rocks to fall on them because they do not want to see the angry gaze of the Lamb of God. Now we also know from Scripture that judgment has been given over from the Father to the Son. Right, All judgment. The judgment that occurs on that final day is is being done by whom? Jesus, right? We just saw that in Matthew 25. In John 5, that is said explicitly. John chapter 5, verse 22. We learn this about our Savior. For not even the Father judges anyone, but He has given all judgment to the Son... So that all will honor the Son even as they honor the Father. He who does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who hears my words and believes him who sent me has eternal life and does not come into judgment but is passed out of death into life. Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and now is when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live For just as the Father has life in Himself, even so He gave to the Son also to have life in Himself. And He gave Him authority to execute judgment because He is the Son of Man. John 9.39 makes the same point. 2 Corinthians 5.10 For we must all appear before what? The judgment seat of Christ so that each may be recompensed for his deeds according to what he has done, whether good or bad. Now, we, there's, there's, a, there's a chapter in the Westminster Confession of Faith on the, the last judgment. It's a concise, it's three paragraphs, it's very helpful. But one of the things it says in there is that, that Christ holds tribunal. And you think of that word, and tribunal for us is a very heavy, very negative sort of connotated word. 
right? It, it is the place where harsh judgments are handed out. And yet that is the word that they intentionally use of Christ at this point, the tribunal of Christ. But they also say this, that, that all judgment has been given over to Jesus for a purpose. Why would judgment be given over to Jesus? And it's for, it says, the manifesting of his glory in two ways. All judgment given over to Christ for the manifesting of his glory in two ways. One, the judgment allows Jesus Christ to express his mercy in saving his elect. But it also allows him to express his justice in the damnation of the reprobates who are wicked and disobedient. And then they apply it and say, thinking upon the wrath of Jesus should lead us to hate sin, to be warned to flee from sin, and to console the godly in adversity. Right? To console the godly in adversity. Some help from the theologians. Again, Mark Jones says this, No one knows the wrath of God like the Son of God. After all, the Lamb of God was roasted in the fire of God's wrath. He was in the fiery furnace during the three hours of darkness at Golgotha. Jesus said more about hell than he did about heaven. Roughly 13% of his preaching is focused on hell and judgment. I mean, we hear that said, but it's true. He spoke more about hell and judgment than he did about the glories of heaven. The scriptures leave us in no doubt about the love of God in Christ, but neither do they leave us guessing whether God through Christ will execute judgment upon the impenitent. Hell is as real as heaven because the cross demands it. All things are created for Christ, Colossians 1.16, even hell itself. Hell glorifies Christ. If it did not, it would not exist. The Jesus we worship must be the Christ of the Scriptures, and he is always concerned with this one question for all people, including for those who claim him as Savior. Who do you say that I am? That's what Mark Jones says. And then it got me thinking about about this. How... How do you convey a sense of the wrath of the Son of God? And that got me thinking about the, the one time when I contemplated the wrath of the Son of God before I was converted, which was reading Edward's sermons, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God, in high school. And we simply don't hear preaching like that. Here's just a taste of that incredible sermon. And, and here's what I begin to think. I begin to think, okay, why does, why does not the reality of Jesus being angry against sin enter into our evangelism at all? It does not. We try to convince people of the winsomeness of Christ, but we never try to convince people of the fact that God, God will strike them down and it will be Jesus doing it. And plead with them to flee from the wrath to come. 
Part of that is because we really don't think there is a judgment coming. We need to think upon the fact that one day every man, remind yourself when you wake up in the morning, this may be the day where we stand before God being judged by him, laid bare, except for either our own righteousness, which is nothing, or the righteousness of Christ clothing us. It could be today. But listen to this, this quote from Edward's sermon. And it's sobering. That's why I, I share this. God has laid himself under no obligation by any promise to keep any natural man out of hell for one moment. God certainly has made no promises either of eternal life or any deliverance or preservation from eternal death but what are contained in the covenant of grace. He's made promises, but they're contained in the covenant of grace, which begins where? Genesis 3.15, when the seed of the serpent will crush, the seed of the woman will crush the seed of the serpent. So he has made no promises but what are contained in the covenant of grace, the promises that are given in Christ, in whom all the promises are yea and amen. But surely they have no interest in the promises of the covenant of grace who are not the children of the covenant, who do not believe in any of the promises and have no interest in the mediator of the covenant. So that whatever some have imagined and pretended about promises made to natural men's earnest seeking and knocking, It is plain and manifest that whatever pains a natural man takes in religion, and by natural man he means an unconverted man, that whatever pains a natural man takes in religion, whatever prayers he makes till he believes in Christ, God is under no manner of obligation to keep him a moment from eternal damnation. So that, thus it is, That natural men are held in the hand of God over the pit of hell. They have deserved the fiery pit. And they are already sentenced to it. And God is dreadfully provoked. That's what we never think about. We never think about the fact that sin dreadfully provokes. Not just God the Father, but the Son of God. God is dreadfully provoked. His anger is as great towards them as to those that are actually suffering the executions of the fierceness of his wrath in hell. And they have done nothing in the least to appease or abate that anger. Neither is God in the least bound by any promise to hold them up one moment. The devil is waiting for them. Hell is gaping for them. The flames gather and flash about them and would fain lay hold on them and swallow them up. The fire pen up in their own hearts is struggling to break out. And they have no interest in any mediator. There are no means within reach that can be any security to them. In short, they have no refuge, nothing to take hold of. All that preserves them every moment is the mere arbitrary will and uncovenanted, unobliged 
forbearance of an incensed God. There is no fear of God today. There is no fear of God. We do not think of the provocation that sin through all the ages has been to God Almighty. And that that it is the absolute mercy of God for Him not to strike down sinners instantly in their sin. I want to make a point too, as, as, as you think about hell, and hell is where the full expression of the wrath of God will abide forever. The, the, the wrath of the Son will abide on those in hell forever. That's why I say Jesus is angry past, he is angry present, he will be angry forever at those who will be eternally punished in hell. But I want to make this point, hell presupposes the love of God. Hell presupposes the love of God. All who are there have done what? We just read it in Psalm 2. All who are there have done what? Spurned Jesus. They have spurned Jesus Christ. They have rejected him as their mediator, right? They have spurned Jesus. They have done so willingly. They've spurned the Son of God, and that incense is the one who says, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. Right? So the whole context of hell is the love that the Father has for the Son. And when the Son is rejected, the Father's jealous love rises up and says, no, my wrath abides on you forever. You may not reject my Son and get away with it. He's incensed about the rejection of his son. And so you see even how hell presupposes the intense Trinitarian love. So what is the purpose of all this? As we think about the wrath of Jesus, we do wonder at the glorious mercy of those who are covered in the righteousness of Christ. Do we not? We wonder at the fact that he chose me. And I have been plucked for some reason by God's grace out of this wrath that's coming. And I've been, I've been, I've been, and will be brought into the presence of God, clothed not in my own righteousness, but the righteousness of Jesus himself. And, and yet that's, again, that's not enough. What should contemplating the anger of Jesus cause us to do? beyond rejoicing in our salvation. What should it do? Good. He, yes, we, we should have, we should have, We are the only ones capable, those who know Christ, are the only ones capable of actually fearing Him. Those who don't know Jesus reject Him. They they mock Him. They have no fear of God. 
right? It is only those who know Jesus and know him as a savior who can actually fear him. And so the fear, of the, the anger of, of Jesus should cause us to be circumspect and sober and to examine ourselves and to repent of sins and to, to, to hate sin and to see that it, inside, it, it, it incenses God above. This is, this is the point of Ecclesiastes, the last part of Ecclesiastes, right? What, is it, what are the last few verses of Ecclesiastes? He goes through this whole book, right? Solomon, the sinner, he's confessing his sins on his deathbed in this book. That's what I believe. Right? And he's going through it. I tried this, this, and this. There was no fear of God in it. And at the end, he says the conclusion, when all has been heard, is fear God and keep his commandments. Because this applies to every person. For God will bring every act to judgment, everything which is hidden, whether it is good or evil. He's like, there's a judgment coming. There's an actual judgment on a particular day that not even Jesus knows, only the Father knows. And it is coming, right? And everybody will be standing before the Lord giving an account of the good and evil that they've done. And then we come to, last thought on this, Psalm 2. There's also this that we gain from thinking about the wrath of Jesus. There's a day of vengeance coming. There's a day of vengeance coming in which God will pour out all his wrath on all his and your enemies. Right? Vengeance is God's. It's not ours. We don't take vengeance into our own hands. We wait And that vengeance will be more righteous, more powerful, more sweeping than anything that we could possibly supply against those who are really enemies of God. Right? Romans 12, 19. Never take your own revenge, beloved, but leave room for the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. Psalm 2 talks about that day of vindication. Perseverance comes when we realize God will take vengeance. And this is godliness to believe this. This is not cruelty to believe this. This is godliness to believe that Jesus will crush his enemies and your enemies, who are his enemies, enemies of the church, right? That is godliness. That is to see things as Scripture lays them out. Now think about this also. The martyrs are crying out what? The martyrs in the presence of the Lord are crying out what? How long, O Lord, holy and true, will you refrain from judging and avenging our blood on those who dwell on the earth? They are calling on God. How long will you wait? To pour your wrath out. The martyrs in the presence of God. And so as we sing Psalm 2, we're joining our voices to the martyrs in heaven who are saying, how long? How long? But if we don't think about Jesus in these terms, if we don't think about Jesus as being angry, then Psalm 2 seems blasphemous to us. 
Revelation 19 seems mean, right? And all of it just lose, it becomes distasteful. Right? Jesus is, is a savior. He's not angry. No, it's not right. He is angry, and he will come and take care of his enemies. Let's pray. Father, we praise you. We honor your son. We do bow our knees before him and we confess that he is awesome in holiness. That he is perfectly just. That, that Father, it, it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Lord, I pray that you would provoke by your spirit in us thoughts that are more true to the reality of your great justice and holiness and righteous indignation toward sin and sinners and nations that reject you. Lord, I pray that you would help us to honor Jesus in our thoughts. And that it will lead to fear and holiness. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.